The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Selective, Potent, Different. How to Enhance Clinical Benefits with Next Generation ROS1 and TREK Inhibition in Treatment-Naive and Pretreated Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer and Other Tumors. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash MVQ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi there, and welcome to today's program. I'm Alexander Drillon, a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And today, in a nutshell, we are going to discuss targeted therapies uh, for NTRAC and ROS1 fusion positive cancers, along with the best strategies to find these fusions. Now, our educational goals are listed on this slide. These include improving your understanding of what targeted therapies are available for these patients, how well these targeted therapies work, what happens at resistance. We'd also like to improve your knowledge of best practices for biomarker testing, meaning which assays to use, how to find these fusions in the clinic. And then finally, improving your skills in selecting the optimal therapy, knowing that there may be several therapeutic options, even on the targeted therapy front, for patients with ROS or NTRAC fusion-positive cancers. Now, in the first section, we're going to first go through a history of these fusions, when these fusions were discovered, and then later on launch into how to find these fusions. So diagnostically, what the best assays are to select and how to maximize the likelihood of finding these fusions in your patient's cancers. And the first slide here is a history of the discovery of oncogenic fusions. And as many of you know, this was really jump-started by the discovery of oncogenic fusions in CML or chronic myelogenous leukemia. Um, First, that was discovered by a karyotype and later was identified by additional sequencing as the BCR-ABLE fusion. And for today's discussion, I'll have you focus on the red boxes there in the chart, showing that both ROS1 and NTRAC fusions were first discovered in the 1980s. Although you'll see that if you move towards the right-hand slide of the history diagram, that many other fusions that you're familiar with were also discovered, um, including ALK fusions, RET fusions, FGFR fusions, and BRAF fusions. It's also worth pointing out that NTRAC has three different genes, NTRAC1, 2, and 3. And while the first NTRAC fusion was an NTRAC1 fusion that was identified, um, additional fusions, including NTRAC2 and NTRAC3 fusions, were later discovered. Now, it's fortunate that the structure of many of these fusions is thematic in that you have a kinase domain containing gene, which is typically what we name the fusion. So ROS1 fusions have the ROS1 fusion kinase domain, NTRAC fusions have the NTRAC kinase domain, and that's shown on the upper right here. Um, towards the right of that figure where you have the three prime domain. And like with the CML or BCR-ABLE, you have a partner gene that's depicted in orange that fuses in the five prime position 
to the downstream gene. And that creates an oncoprotein that's a chimera of the fused genes. And what usually happens is that the chimeric oncoprotein will then drive oncogenic signaling and cancer growth. So it makes sense to inhibit the kinase of interest in order to shut down that process. Here we have the archetype for a cancer that contains many different fusions, and that's lung cancer. In fact, beyond fusions, lung cancer contains many different actionable drivers, including mutations like EGFR, both classical and exon 20, HER2, BRAF, metexon 14, and KRAS. Um, there are also amplifications as drivers in lung cancer, like MET amplification. But for today's talk, we're focusing on these fusions, such as ROS1 and, and NTRAC, that are among other fusions like ALK and RED. And the good news is that these fusions are associated with targeted therapies that are approved in one or more regulatory domains. For example, for ROS1, we have the approval of crizotinib and entrectinib, and for NTRAC fusions, we have the approval of larotrectinib and entrectinib as well, which is a dual-purpose TKI that inhibits both. Now, despite this wealth of options that we have, meaning the many different drivers that are identified in lung cancer, fusions, mutations, amplification, the rates of testing are actually disappointing. And here we have two different data sets showing you that in the community, the likelihood of testing for these alterations um, is really, if you're looking at the fusions, about 75% or below. So in red in the table, you'll see that for ROS1, um, for non-squamous um, tumors, you see a 73% hit rate for testing. Um, and for all biomarkers, inclusive um, of additional biomarkers not shown in the table, um, you see that the testing rates are a little under 50%. In a separate series that's shown in the box below, um, you'll note a similar theme that approximately 64% of potentially eligible patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer are not benefiting from precision oncology therapies for their disease. Um, so in a nutshell, it means that we're missing some patients who could benefit from these very active therapies, as you'll come to hear, because we're not doing the appropriate tests to find these drivers. And I'll broaden this a little bit and say that this also applies for other cancers, recognizing that now we have these tumor agnostic approvals for some drivers that extend across different histologies. And so um, for other histologies where perhaps sequencing isn't as much of a priority, I would imagine that the rates of testing would be even lower for these drivers. So how to improve biomarker testing in non-small cell lung cancer? Well, it's good to recognize the challenges um, that there are certain restrictions um, in your practice environment. You may be locked uh, into certain uh, internal assays, for example, that your hospital does, um, or coverage may dictate which particular assays to use. Um, I think that beyond that, 
as we try to solve this problem, we really need to focus on just increasing education surrounding these drivers, especially the newer ones and the ones that are less common, what targeted therapies are available, and how well these targeted therapies work, um, which is essentially what we're doing with today's program. Beyond that, a uh, virtual molecular tumor board has helped some where a group of experts can get together, discuss difficult cases, uh, pull from the latest evidence, and recommend the appropriate targeted therapy for that particular situation. So we're going to give you a case that's going to thread through our discussion today. And this is a 68-year-old never smoker who noticed a persistent non-productive cough. Um, an x-ray was performed, a left lung nodule was detected that prompted the ordering of a CAT scan that did identify a three centimeter left lower lobe lung nodule, but unfortunately also found enlarged mediastinal nodes and metastatic disease to the liver and bone. Um, no brain metastases were detected for this case. For a pathologic diagnosis, a biopsy of both the liver and bone were conducted. Um, and the pulmonologist um, also suggested that a bronchoscopy via EBUS be performed. Um, ultimately, an FNA of the lung lesion um, identified adenocarcinoma, which was consistent with a lung primary that was TTF1 positive. PDL1 IHC uh, showed an 80%. Uh, TPS score for PDL1 uh, using the 22C3 antibody. And initial molecular testing constituted EGFR, BRAF, KRAS PCR, and ROS1 fish with no other testing done. So the patient was anxious to start treatment, and the local oncologist suggested immediate initiation of immunotherapy with pembrolizumab based on the high PDL1 positivity. And the patient presents to you for a second opinion. So we're going to come back to this case later um, while we go through um, a little bit of the uh, didactic for you on the diagnostic and testing front. So um, what is proper biomarker testing at uh, diagnosis um, of lung cancer and other cancers? Um, and um, obviously, um, when you're selecting the um, different tests, you have in mind what you can do about these tests, meaning that you have approved targeted therapies, um, or perhaps that you have clinical trials that are available that these patients may enroll to if you find a driver in their tumor. Um, also beyond targeted therapy, other treatment modalities such as systemic therapies, chemotherapy, immunotherapy are potential options. Um, so the testing will help guide if you should choose targeted therapy um, over these other two systemic therapies. Um, meanwhile, also the type of testing can matter and will go into tissue versus liquid biopsies um, and whether or not you should do single gene versus multiplex or NGS testing and DNA versus RNA. So to jump right in, there are a number of different assays that may be used to detect fusions. Um, and you'll see here that we have immunohistochemistry, FISH, RT-PCR, differential expression assays, and then NGS. 
um, knowing that there are uh, many different uh, flavors of NGS, um, which we don't have time to get into today. But essentially, if you look at the tests above, these were older tests like FISH, for example, and RT-PCR um, that perhaps looked at one gene or a few genes or a select cadre of fusions only. Um, versus newer tests that perhaps have a discovery element, meaning that NGS, DNA-based NGS, for example, you may find new fusions that are activating that may previously not have been annotated. But in addition, with DNA-based NGS, what you also get is a look at the co-mutation status um, and some of these other alterations um, with emerging literature may modify the uh, activity of targeted therapy that you give your patients. Now, um, even if you do a very comprehensive DNA-based next-generation sequencing assay, the issue with the fusions is that those tests may not be optimal at finding every single event. Um, and in particular for ROS1, for example, or NTRAC, these are fusions which may have technical issues that contribute to the difficulty of finding all events on DNA. So for ROS1, you may have these repetitive sequences where the fusions occur, um, which make it hard to capture things on DNA. And for NTRAC also, there are these long intronic sequences that likewise make it hard to capture these fusions via DNA. Um, and so we're now relying on another method to find these fusions. Um, and in particular, we know that if you look at fusions at the RNA level, where you have the final fusion product, as you see in this diagram on the very right, meaning you don't need to deal with the introns, you don't need to deal with the repetitive sequences at the breakpoints, um, and you're only looking for that final fusion product at the RNA level, then you can maximize the success of finding these fusions. And this is a series here that we conducted at our institution where we looked at lung adenocarcinomas that were quote-unquote driver negative via our best DNA-based next-generation sequencing panel at that time. And you'll note that in about uh, over 15% of cases that were DNA negative, RNA-based testing then subsequently found one of these fusions. Um, and these included ROS1 fusions, NTRAC fusions, but also other fusions that we discussed like ALK and um, uh, RET fusions. Um, so certainly um, this is now uh, much more practice, the use of RNA on top of DNA. For example, at our institution, um, if we have a DNA-based NGS test that's negative, our pathologist will reflex that to RNA-based testing. Now, putting this all together, you might wonder if the prior approach of doing several different tests uh, versus this contemporary approach of doing one big test that captures everything, uh, which of these is more cost-effective? And based on this study, um, it does show that it is more cost-effective to do one big test with next-generation sequencing um, up front. Um, this also skirts issues of um, tissue availability because with piecemeal testing in the past, sometimes we had to repeat a biopsy even more than once to secure the amount of tissue that we need for testing. Now, I promise that we also talk very briefly about doing liquid biopsies. Um, and the advantage here, of course, is that in some patients, it may be technically difficult to secure a large amount of uh, tissue uh, via a biopsy. 
Um, there are certain cases also where you might have predominantly bone uh, metastases without a soft tissue component. And in these cases, relying on a liquid biopsy, so plasma ctDNA can be very helpful. Um, the other advantage here also is that you get the answer back fairly quickly since these panels are much more targeted or focused than the larger um, NGS panels, which may run 500 genes, for example, versus your liquid biopsy that will run a uh, smaller uh, menu um, of genes that are interrogated. Um, one other advantage is that you get to sample any cancer that's shedding its DNA into the bloodstream. So you, you are potentially capturing uh, more heterogeneity via doing these liquid biopsies. Um, and one important caveat is that these liquid biopsies are predominantly DNA-based right now, although a lot of research is going on in the RNA-based plasma testing. However, um, all of the caveats that we talked about regarding identifying fusions via DNA on tissue also applied identifying fusions via DNA um, in blood. So finally, we animated this already, but there needs to be a lot of communication between the different um, providers that are taking care of a patient. Um, so for example, um, if you're a medical oncologist, I think having close dialogue with the pathologist, the molecular diagnostics person, the person acquiring tissue, whether that be interventional radiology um, or pulmonary or surgery, if you're dealing with a lung cancer, for example, um, those are all key. And basic things really are saying, um, try to collect as much tissue as is safe and feasible so that we have enough tissue to send our pathologist to run the best possible test. And then in terms of the best possible test for fusions, it's making sure that um, you try to do a comprehensive assay that hopefully interrogates both DNA and RNA. So returning to our case, we have our never smoker um, who had a very limited panel of tests, only EGFR, BRAF, KRAS, um, and FISH for ROS1. Um, what I would do in this case is assuming that there's um, enough tissue, um, I would send this case for at least DNA-based next-generation sequencing, preferably with a hybrid capture-based assay because we know that those are better than applicon-based assays. But in addition, I would definitely ask to see if RNA-based testing can be performed as it maximizes the chance chances of finding one of these fusions. If there isn't enough tissue, then of course, um, I would talk to the person that acquired the tissue previously or talk to a different provider, perhaps, if you'd like to try a different strategy for biopsy or surgical excision, and really underscore that we need as much tissue um, as is safe and feasible um, in order to run these tests. Um, and in general, um, pathologists would need something like 15 to 20 unstained slides um, in order to do this. So from a practical perspective, instead of doing something like an FNA um, that was done for this patient, do something like a core biopsy instead. Going back to our case, in this patient, sufficient material was available for further testing, DNA-based NGS was performed, and no driver was identified. This makes sense because we've talked about the limitations of DNA-based testing for finding some alterations like fusions, and lo and behold, RNA-based NGS was performed in this case, and a ROS1 fusion was found. 
So we will come back to this case later on. But in the next two major sections, we're going to discuss the targeted therapies for ROS1 and NTRAC. And we are going to begin with ROS1 fusions. This first slide shows you in the middle the structure of these ROS1 fusions where you have an intact ROS1 kinase domain in green that hooks up with a variety of different upstream partners like CD74, EZR, SLC34, A2, and SDC4. In the pie chart, or the ring chart, I should say, on the upper right, you'll note that the most common partners are CD74, EZR, followed by SDC4 and SLC34A2. CD74 is sort of the EML4 equivalent for ROS1, knowing that EML4 ALK is the most common um, fusion for ALK. CD74 ROS1 is the most common fusion in lung cancer for ROS1. And then very briefly, these fusions produce chimeric oncoproteins that largely live in the cytoplasm or subcellular compartments, as you see on the upper left. There are a number of different ROS1 tyrosine kinase inhibitors that are out there, many of which are still investigational. Crizotinib and entrectinib are the only approved agents by the FDA or other regulatory bodies. But the take-home point is that uh, while there are many different TKIs, you'll note that most of them really bind the ROS1 kinase in this sort of type 1 fashion. Um, where they compete with ATP and they shut down the ROS1 kinase. Um, and that's not particularly important for our program today, but just to say that they've all been of one particular flavor, and perhaps in the future investigating the use of drugs that bind in a different way altogether or type 2 inhibitors. Um, older drugs like cabozatinib are type 2 inhibitors. Investigating um, these TKIs may be helpful to provide newer options for our patients. So we'll start with the approved agents, and crizotinib was the first drug that was approved for the treatment of ROS1 fusion-positive lung cancers. Um, as of yet, we do not have a tumor agnostic approval for any ROS1 TKI for ROS1 fusion-positive cancers in general, but I hope that happens in the future. So you're really going to predominantly see lung cancer data in the next few slides. Um, here we have the registrational data set of crizotinib from the Profile 1001 trial. Interestingly, it was the trial that also got crizotinib approved for ALK fusion positive lung cancers back in the day. Um, and there's a larger trial called the OX-ONC trial um, that pulled um, from a wider geography, including many patients from Asia. Um, and here you see that across both of these larger data sets for ROS1, that response rates are high, meaning most patients will benefit and have brisk responses to therapy, and the median progression-free survival is long. So for profile 1001 and crizotinib, it's uh, approaching 19 and a half months, with a median overall survival um, of more than 51 months, which is wonderful. The next drug that's approved is entrectinib, and the difference between crizotinib and entrectinib is that entrectinib was designed to be a little better at getting into the central nervous system compartment. Um, also, you'll note that the uh, entrectinib drug also inhibits um, TKI uh, kinases, I should say, like um, Entrac, which is why we're going to come back to entrectinib later in the discussion. 
Um, whereas crizotinib isn't a great inhibitor of um, NTRAC. Um, there are also other things like MET that crizotinib inhibits that entrectinib does not inhibit. But going back to ROS1, here we see the registrational data for entrectinib. Um, this was um, not from a single trial, but a conglomerate of data from separate programs, where you see that in patients who are TKI naive, um, the response rate um, is um, 68% looking at the table. Uh, many patients, as you can see in the waterfall plot, have deep responses to therapy. The vast majority have disease regression. Um, and you see here the Kaplan-Meier curve um, on the right of overall survival, where you see the landmarks at one year, two years, and uh, three years, uh, the latter of which you have 60% of patients who are still alive um, after having um, begun entrectinib. So um, like crizotinib, this drug is approved. Um, I do tend to use entrectinib over crizotinib, given the fact that we're potentially seeing better brain penetration. Um, and also, um, this drug can work um, against um, a few mutations that um, crizotinib uh, doesn't work against, but we'll get into the uh, mutation uh, portion of the discussion later on as it relates to resistance. Um, now, while those are two approved therapies, there certainly are investigational therapies that are currently in development. Um, we're going to discuss repotrectinib in a little bit more detail because um, this drug actually has several uh, breakthrough designations by the FDA for the treatment of Rosson fusion positive lung cancers. And so there's a chance that the drug may be approved soon for patients. Um, and here we see the TKI naive data of repotrectinib in Rosson fusion positive lung cancers, where the response rate is uh, almost 79%. Um, and you'll see a very nice waterfall plot where pretty much everyone had disease regression in their target lesions with therapy. Um, you also see the Kaplan-Meier curves of duration of response and progression-free survival um, that go out um, uh, pretty far. Um, actually, you'll see that the median for progression-free survival um, is north um, of 30 months. Um, and comparatively, if you remember for crizotinib and entrectinib, uh, the former of which had a median progression-free survival of 19 months, we're seeing um, an advancement here in a cross-trial comparison of the length of time that patients are on the TKI. Now, talotrectinib is another investigational agent that's being explored for ROS1 fusion positive lung cancers. And like repotrectinib, so both drugs are considered next generation. Um, you're seeing here high response rates in this data set uh, via IRC. We see a response rate north of 90% <clears throat> and a median progression free survival that wasn't reached yet. Um, in this data set. So um, it's looking good um, in terms of the activity of these next generation TKIs in the TKI naive setting. Um, and we hope that one or more of these drugs are approved as we move into the future. Now we mentioned mutations briefly and in the ROS1 fusion space, these are very important to remember as mediators of resistance to therapy. So in very simple terms, you have a patient that starts crizotinib or entrectinib. What happens after the cancer becomes resistant to treatment, hopefully after several years on treatment, as we've seen with other patients? Well, the data set here shows you that many 
resistance mutations can emerge uh, post-chrysotinib, for example, in that bar graph on the left, where you see the G2032R resistance mutation, D2033N resistance mutation, S1986F um, mutation. Um, And these have a bearing on our next generation therapies, which are designed to counter these resistance mutations. Now, we'll start with lorlatinib, which to me is intermediate in generation between crizotinib and entrectinib, and the next generation TKIs, repotrectinib and talotrectinib, the date of which we just talked about for the TKI naive space. So this is a big differentiating factor because for those of you that have treated patients with ALK, lorlatinib is thought of as a very good next generation or third generation agent for the treatment of ALK fusion positive lung cancers. In the ROS1 space, it's not exactly the same. Um, It does fall short in terms of covering some mutations like G2032R. Um, And so it really is not as advanced as it is in the ALK fusion positive space. But here we have the data on lorlatinib. Um, where you see a, um, a response rate in the post-chrysotinib um, setting um, of 35%. Um, and because of this, this drug has gotten into the NCCN guidelines for the treatment of um, ROS1 fusion positive lung cancers. But um, as we spoke about, there were no patients in this seminal data set that had ROS1 G2032R mutant cancers, that very nasty or recalcitrant resistance mutation that responded to therapy. So certainly um, that means there's an unmet need for other drugs that do address ROS1 G2032R. Um, And so we get to these macrocyclic TKIs, um, which essentially are ways of designing our next generation TKIs so that they target mutations like ROS1 G2032R. Um, And in this diagram, that will be what we call your solvent front mutation, um, if you look at that upper row. Um, And essentially, what we're seeing with these newer drugs is that they're designed to be sort of smaller rings um, that zip past the um, areas of blockage that are put up by the resistance mutations, re-engage the ROS1 kinase, and thus shut down signaling. So this means that you have a chance of reestablishing disease control despite a resistance mutation by using one of these next generation agents. Um, and ribotrectinib is one of these drugs. You've already heard about the drug in the TKI naive space, and we're bringing that back in the orange column here. So in the pretreated space, we're seeing response rates um, that are um, in the order of 12 to 40 percent in patients who have received um, one or two prior TKIs. Um, with the durability that's shown at the bottom of this table, um, both in patients with um, and without CNS metastases. Um, And this activity is great because it means that patients can start with crisotinib or entrectinib. They can then get repotrectinib or another next-generation drug, and their cancer can respond again to TKI therapy, this sequential TKI model uh, of doing one drug after another. Um, Here we're showing you the waterfall plot, and uh, unfortunately, this is a conglomerate of the TKI naives and the TKI pretreatments. 
the former in orange and the latter um, in various shades uh, of blue or green. Uh, but the punchline here is that even in the TKI pretreated patients, um, you have uh, many patients who have disease or aggression with repotrectinib, despite previously having been treated with crizotinib and trectinib um, or other drugs like seritinib, uh, an older ROS1 inhibitor um, that's not widely popular in the ROS1 fusion positive space. Um, we're also seeing here um, the progression-free survival curve. On the right, you see patients who have had prior TKIs um, where um, you're seeing uh, the PFS contrasted with those that are TKI naive. Obviously, very different populations um, and low ends here. But it's unsurprising that the TKI does better in someone that has never had a TKI before, um, while its durability um, can be shorter in patients that have had a prior tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Um, fortunately, this drug also works very well in the brain, and you'll see here the likelihood of developing new brain metastases uh, in both the TKI-naive and TKI-pretreated patients with repotrectinib is low. The highest percentage you have there is 20%. Um, so we have this concept of trying to protect the CNS, protect patients from the acquisition of brain metastases, but it also means that the drug can work very well, as we've seen, in patients with CNS metastases at baseline. Now, you may be wondering how well the drug works specifically against that solvent front G2032R resistance mutation we talked about. Um, and here is that plot where you see that many patients have disease regression with therapy, and the response rate here approaches 60%. Now, in terms of safety, one thing that we haven't discussed is that there are some ROS1 inhibitors that also inhibit TRAC, and we'll come back to this in the next section where we talk about NTRAC fusions. But repotrectinib and entrectinib are ROS1 inhibitors that also inhibit TRAC, and so these drugs have side effects that are associated with shutting down TRAC, like paresthesias, weight gain, withdrawal pain, and that's important to remember when you treat uh, patients. Uh, they may have ROS1 fusions, but because the drugs are also shutting down TRAC, you have consequences of the inhibition of TRAC as well. Now, we mentioned that um, we're discussing um, repotrectinib because it already has breakthrough designation and has priority review. And so we're crossing fingers that one or more of these next generation drugs like repotrectinib um, gets approved in the future. Um, and stacking up repotrectinib against lorlatinib, uh, um, you'll see here that um, the uh, objective response rates um, are in the same ballpark, so in the 30 to at most 40% range. Uh, medium progression-free survival in this data cut has not been reached yet for repotrectinib. So the hope is that compared to lorlatinib, repotrectinib might have longer durability in this setting. But one thing that you'll note in that um, dark gray column in the middle, that certainly repotrectinib has activity against G2032R when that was not seen with lorlatinib. So if you find this on a sequencing report for your patient, repotrectinib or one of the other next-generation drugs like talitrectinib, which we'll discuss in a second, um, is a good option. So talking about that other next-generation drug, we have talitrectinib, also a ROS1 and TRAC inhibitor. Here you'll see that the um, response rates 
um, the response rate for this data set was north of 50%, so numerically higher than ribotrectinib, median progression-free survival of um, almost 10 months, uh, very familiar waterfall plot of patients who are previously treated with crizotinib, where you see disease regression in many patients. And in the spider plot, you'll see that these uh, regressions were durable uh, for uh, the majority of patients um, in the data set. Now, finally, um, are there any newer drugs, so a different generation even, than ribotrectinib and talotrectinib? And the answer is yes. Um, and now we're going to discuss uh, NVL520, which was designed to subtract the inhibition of TRAC. Okay, that seems like a mouthful, but this drug is very selective for ROS1 and does not inhibit NTRAC. So it does not come with the baggage of the neurologic toxicities that I mentioned for um, talotrectinib, ribotrectinib, and entrectinib. And this was early data that was presented um, from the phase one trial of NVL520, uh, where here you see that the drug has a response rate of 78% in the G2032R mutation, so pretty good batting average. It also works very well, 73% in patients with a history of CNS metastases. Um, and you'll see response rates that are north of 50% in patients who have had prior TKI therapy. Uh, in the waterfall plot, many of these um, patients that responded had durable responses to um, Nuvalent, or NVL520, I should say. And more importantly, and not shown on this slide, um, there were no reports of drug-related neurologic toxicity, really uh, underscoring the utility of designing this drug without inhibition of TRAC and with much more selectivity for ROS1. So returning to our case and trying to pull everything together, we have a patient for whom a ROS1 fusion was identified. What would I start with first? Well, obviously, you would reach for one of the approved drugs like crizotinib or entrectinib. And while the data do not seem wildly different uh, in a cross-trial comparison of crizotinib and entrectinib, my personal preference is to use entrectinib because uh, it does come with the potential advantage of increased CNS coverage. Um, but as you've heard, there are other drugs that are being explored in the TKI-naive setting. You've seen the data for ribotrectinib and talotrectinib, um, and um, the activity in that setting looks great. And so it's not an unreasonable option for a patient who's willing to explore investigational agent to try one of these drugs. Now, um, if we go through the exercise of this patient gets crizotinib or entrectinib and then later progresses, definitely try to sequence the patient, either tumor or tissue. Um, and if you find a resistance mutation uh, or on target resistance, as we say, then um, doing lurlatinib, which is in the NCCN guidelines, um, is something that you can um, readily do. However, um, I've shown you that lurlatinib may not be the best drug for ROS1. So if you have access to one of these trials of ripotrectinib, talotrectinib, or NVL520, um, those would be good options for patients, potentially even better than um, lurlatinib. We're now going to shift gears and pivot to NTRAC fusions, and we're going to take that exact same case that we discussed earlier and presume that RNA-based next-generation sequencing identified an NTRAC fusion. 
So we'll come back to this case after we show you the data for the various targeted therapies that are approved for NTRAC. And like for us one, we're going to begin with the structure of these NTRAC fusions. Going back to that theme that we're seeing patterns here with NTRAC, the NTRAC 1, 2, and 3 genes having that same intact tyrosine kinase domain in the downstream or 3' prime position. And that hooks up with a bunch of different upstream fusion partners or 5' prime partners um, that produce an oncoprotein that then drives cancer growth. So um, there are three different NTRAC genes. Keep that in mind. NTRAC 1, 2, and 3 that um, encode track A, B, and C, the proteins that are made by these fusions. Um, and there are, uh, I should say, more popular uh, fusion types like ETV6 and track 3 that you'll hear about more. Um, however, if you look here at this diagram, there really are many different um, fusion partners um, that hook up with NTRAC 1, 2, or 3. So keep that variety in mind. Now, there are two track inhibitors that are currently approved in the United States or uh, by other regulatory agencies, larotrectinib and entrectinib. What are the differences? Larotrectinib is a selective track inhibitor that only inhibits track A, B, and C. While entrectinib, as you've seen in the prior section, in addition to inhibiting track A, B, and C, also inhibits other things like ROS1. Now, focusing on the indications, we have tumor agnostic approval. That was really a big deal for the oncology community that we got these drugs approved in this fashion. Um, and we also have approval not just in adult patients, but also in pediatric patients. Um, so all that matters really is that you have an NTRAC fusion positive solid tumor. Um, and um, as you can see from the labels of these drugs, um, there's a wide variety of different patients that can benefit from these TKIs. So uh, we'll first go through the data in um, all cancers with an NTRAC fusion. And um, for larotrectinib, for example, this includes the pediatric population. Uh, and here you'll see response rates of 60 to almost 80% for entrectinib and larotrectinib um, if you round up the numbers. Median progression-free survival of 11 months for entrectinib and 28 months for larotrectinib. Um, and you see that these drugs do work well in the central nervous system with response rates of 50 to 75%. Um, these are across any cancer, adult or pediatric, with an NTRAC fusion. Um, and if you pull out the lung cancer subset, as you see in this slide, uh, you'll note that the outcomes were comparable. So the objective response rate in uh, lung cancer patients was 83%. As you'll see in the table, the drug also worked well in patients with CNS metastases. Um, you'll look that at the um, waterfall plot and see that all patients had disease regression with therapy with or without CNS metastases, and that in the swimmer plot and in the Kaplan-Meier curve, that the benefit from larotrectinib was durable. So this behaves like a very active targeted therapy like we've seen for EGFR, ALK, um, and ROS1 in the prior section. The same can be said of entrectinib. Here we're again pulling out the lung cancer subset 
of patients with an NTRAC fusion, and you'll see a very nice waterfall plot there, many deep responses to therapy, objective response rate of almost 64%, and we're seeing responses also in patients with CNS metastases uh, with a median duration of response of 20 months uh, and a median PFS um, that wasn't noted as per this data cut. But both drugs can work um, very well for patients with NTRAC fusion-positive lung cancers or other cancers. Now, um, as we discussed with ROS1, uh, patients can do very well on a first-generation drug like entrectinib or larotrectinib and then develop resistance to therapy. The good thing is that the way these cancers develop resistance is similar, and many cancers can acquire these resistance mutations. Uh, The resistance mutations can produce blockages where these drugs bind, so they're not able to uh, effectively engage the kinase domain um, and shut down oncogenic signaling. And so you'll see in this table on the very left, the uh, y-axis, the different mutations that can emerge with um, first-generation therapy. Um, some of these are at the solvent front, and you've heard about that region on the kinase before. Some of these are at the gatekeeper uh, position, um, something that can also occur for ROS1 and not just NTRAC. Um, and um, as with ROS1, there are next-generation drugs that have been designed to target these resistance mutations. Repotrectinib is one of them. We'll talk about the NTRAC specific data. Selitrectinib is another one. Uh, we'll talk about that drug in a second. Talitrectinib, um, as you've heard in the ROS1 section, also inhibits NTRAC, but is also a next generation inhibitor that targets resistance mutations. So um, what's the frequency of the acquisition of these mutations? This is uh, from a data set in ASCO 2023, where if you focus on the pie chart on the upper right, you'll see that um, in um, this data set um, of a variety of adult and pediatric uh, cancers uh, treated with a first-generation TRAC inhibitor um, at a single center, um, the frequency of on-target resistance is very high. So 83% will acquire resistance mutation. Um, and that's good news because it means that potentially many patients who progress on entrectinib or larotrectinib may be candidates for treatment with a next-generation TRAC inhibitor. Um, and that's not always the case. There are some fusions like RET, for example, where the frequency of resistance mutations is lower. Uh, but thankfully for TRAP, you're seeing um, a high likelihood of the acquisition of these mutations. So we'll go into each of these drugs, repotrectinib and selitrectinib. Um, repotrectinib um, is a drug that we discussed in the last section that hits a bunch of resistance mutations in NTRAC as well. Um, and the difference between that drug and selitrectinib is almost a parallel between um, these drugs and entrectinib and larotrectinib. So if you remember, larotrectinib was selective for TRAC, entrectinib inhibited other things like ROS. Selitrectinib is selective for TRAC, while repotrectinib inhibits a bunch of other things like ROS1. And that's the simplest way to describe the difference between these drugs. So we start with selitrectinib, um, and this was um, a data set from AACR um, showing that there were many patients who were previously treated with a first-generation TRAC inhibitor 
um, acquired resistance, uh, many of which were these mutations at the sovereign front, gatekeeper, um, and other motifs. Um, and you can see here that there were patients um, that had confirmed or partial responses um, to therapy, and it seems like those responses were enriched in cancers that harbor these resistance mutations. So you'll see that the response rate for solvent front mutations was 50% in this small data set. Um, gatekeeper mutations was 25%, and just any kinase resistance mutation in general, it was 45%. Now, um, for the other drug, repotrectinib, we go back to that same data set we talked about for ROS1 with the Trident 1 trial, but this time focus on NTRAC fusions. Um, and here you'll see, similar to the um, uh, selitrectinib data, the activity of repotrectinib um, in TKI pretreated advanced solid tumors with an NTRAC fusion, where many patients of different cancer types had disease regression with therapy. Um, showing you again the utility of sequential TKI therapy where you jump from one drug to another, um, the latter of which being designed to target resistance. So um, returning to our case, um, we have the patient with an NTRAC fusion. And the first question, of course, is what to do um, in someone that's TKI naive. And given the high response rates, very durable disease control, um, my preference is to use targeted therapy up front because um, even if you compare the outcomes of targeted therapy to the various chemotherapy or immunotherapy options available for different cancers, um, the activity is still really good with targeted therapy and arguably much better than many other options. So my preference is to start with a TRAC inhibitor when you find an NTRAC fusion. In this situation, I tend to prefer larotrectinib over entrectinib because larotrectinib is more selective. Um, and um, I, I do see a uh, little bit of a lower frequency of side effects with the larotrectinib, but if only entrectinib is available to you, then that's a reasonable choice. Um, as we discussed with ROS1, in the NTRAC fusion positive setting, if you have someone that progresses, um, I would advise that you get that patient's uh, cancer sequenced with a repeat biopsy um, and or do a liquid biopsy. Um, and if you find um, on-target resistance um, or find no evidence of bypass or off-target resistance, it's good to know that there are these next-generation drugs like repotrectinib, selitrectinib, talotrectinib, which we didn't have time to discuss, um, that have um, activity um, in the resistance setting. So um, what are the take-home messages from today's program? Well, it all goes back to the, the concept of if you don't find one of these fusions, you can't do anything about it. And so testing is really paramount. Um, and it deserves highlighting that um, next generation sequencing of DNA and RNA is an optimal approach to finding these fusions. But whenever you're able to do complementary liquid-based ctDNA testing, um, that, that further maximizes your likelihood of finding these fusions. Uh, the more we test, the more cases we find, the more patients we can treat, and these patients can benefit very well from these targeted therapies. Um, you've seen very high response rates to 
targeted therapy in the TKI naive setting for both ROS1 um, and NTRAC for the first generation inhibitors and very durable disease control. Um, now, when someone progresses on these first generation therapies, repeat sequencing is um, very much advised. Um, and these can help dictate if a next generation TKI is a good option for your patient. Um, and for many of these drugs, we've seen clinical proof of principle um, that these next generation therapies can work very well um, in the appropriate setting. And with that, thank you very much for your attention and for joining us today. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash MVQ 860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.